Deuteronomy chapter 30. Sometimes when it comes to the chapters, the chapter breaks. Uh, Remember, we believe that the Bible is inspired by God. We believe that it's authored by the Holy Spirit, but the chapters are not inspired by God. The insertions there, the verses, those numbers, those were given much later for our sake in order to be able to refer to these things much easier. So as useful and as helpful as these chapter breaks are to us, to memorize and to, just like we did right now, meet me in this chapter, they can sometimes do a disservice with the flow of thought in the text. And that could be true for this, because Moses, if you were here last week, is still continuing the end of his sermon where he's trying to make an appeal to the people, his audience. This generation of Israelites that are about to cross into the promised land. Moses is making a call to commitment. After preaching so long, which is a reminder, isn't it? Uh, remember Moses, what was his complaint about uh, being used by God when God called him in Exodus? What was his complaint? He stutters. I can't even, I can't even pronounce a sentence or a paragraph without, without stuttering. Do you sure you want me to be your spokesman? And God assured him that he who created the mouth is able to be with that mouth. And the, the man that was called by God and complained and was worried because of his stuttering lips was a man who preached a whole sermon in the book of Deuteronomy. You know, this is a sermon, right? So Moses is preaching, and the man who was worried about him declaring the word without stammering, he is now doing it flawlessly because God is with him. Remember that. Your weakness is no limit to God. Deuteronomy 30, he's continuing his call to action for the people to say yes to him, to say yes to God and to commit to him in a covenant. And so what is he doing? Well, in chapter 29, he wanted to encourage them by realizing the benefits, the blessings that are reserved for those who are rightly related to God. But he also warned them, that's a balance of how we understand God, he also warned them of saying yes to God and then veering away from your commitment to him, and then he presents the judgments that await somebody that would do so. But Moses isn't done yet. Before Moses makes him sign the dotted line to say, yes, I will live for Yahweh for the rest of my life. He wants to present one more aspect of God. He wants to help them realize the goodness of God, a depth of who he is that many people are perhaps unfamiliar with or maybe believe in theory, but it hasn't reached their hearts yet. And Moses wants to make sure that they understand something about him, about God, before they commit to him or perhaps they're hesitant to do so. Look at verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, what things? See, we've got to ask that question. And what, what things? Well, chapter 29, the end of it tells us. The end of chapter 29 were the, the judgments that would come upon the nation and the person who would reject obedience to God and live in unrepented sin. We can summarize it in verse 27 of chapter 29. Look at it very quickly. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. That's what would be said of the Israelites when they would live in disobedience. They would be taken out of their land and placed in another land under the rule of a pagan nation. So now we come to chapter 30. He goes, when these things come upon you, when this happens, 
If you choose to live in this way, there is something that I want you to understand about God. He says, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. This is what he wants them to understand about God. That though they might be in a state of severe discipline, God is a God of restoration. God is a God who desires to rebuild, to replant, to restore, to revive. And this is what he wants them to know about God. He's a God of second chances. Again, we, we might think, Moses, do you really want to promote that kind of idea of God? Wouldn't that promote unfaithfulness? Not to the truly repentant. We're going to discover that. So he goes, you know, God is a God of restoration. Listen, he's not just the fountain of all blessings, like in 29. He's not just the holy, righteous judge of all the earth, like in chapter 29. Here in chapter 30, he wants them to know that he is the restorer of the sincere, repented heart. I want to restore you. I want to bring you back in, and I want to bless you. In fact, look at verse 10 here. Scroll down. Rather, in verse 9. For the Lord, the second part, for the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. It delights God to bless. It delights God to bring in again. It delights God to make prosperous spiritually and in the soul. This is what delights God, not judgment. Not casting people into hell. Does he do that? Will he do that? Yes. But he doesn't take delight in it as much as he does in extending mercy. This is our God. But we got to make ourselves very clear here in understanding this concept of restoration. It's not automatic. That's where people get it twisted. It's not automatic. That state, that, that status of grace, of experiencing the waterfall of his love and compassion is conditional. And the conditions are found in verse 1 and 2. And they're not just for Israel. You better believe that this is a principle for all people who would, listen, who would have committed to God and have walked away from God. Does that happen? All the time. Should it happen? Absolutely not. But what, what happens if it happens? Well, let's see what he tells Israel. Look at verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, here's the first thing. Here are three steps. Ready? And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. If you know a person or if you are even here tonight in that place where though you're here physically, your spirit man is not with God. You're not walking with God. He's not your dwelling place. You don't know his presence. You haven't spoken to him and you don't even remember when you last time read his word. And you're living in sin. And you're living out in the world. Is it possible to come to church and live in the world? Absolutely. Should it happen? Absolutely not. But if it does, and if you are that person... Here's step number one in our Bible study tonight. Remember. Step number one is remember. Why? Because he says, when you call them to mind, call them to mind. So when they would be in the gloomiest place, when they would be under pagan rule, when they would be so far away from home, when they would be surrounded by idolatry and sin and filth, and they realize what their sin has brought them into, the first thing God says is, when you call them to mind what the blessing and the curse 
which is what? The word of God. The very thing that we've been unpacking the past two weeks is what they were to remember. Because you know why? Usually the reason why somebody would veer off from devotion to God is because they forgot the word of God. That's why. That's where it all begins. When this fails to fill your mind and when this fails to be the source of your daily food, you better believe that your feet are going to wander off. And it might be just one degree off, but over time, just like a plane, if it's one degree off, over time you will find yourself in a place that you never thought you would find yourself. So he's saying, call to mind the word. You know, as Christians, we promote meditation because the Bible promotes meditation, but not the way yoga teaches it and Eastern mysticism teaches it. Because the pagan idea of meditation is empty your mind, clear your mind. Don't think about anything. And then they tell you to do all these different things, these positions and these things, and we think they're just harmless when it is rooted in so much paganism. Side note, different Bible study, another time. But the Bible's concept of meditation is fill your mind. Fill it with the word. Saturate yourself with scripture. Memorize and rehearse, even with your own lips. Listen and converse about the word because that is the anchor to your behavior, to your attitude, to your decisions. Call to mind the blessing and the curse, the, word, the sermon that you heard from Moses. Remember what you heard, and this will be the light back to the right path, which tells me so something special about the word of God. What did, what did the psalmist say? I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not what? Sin against thee. Right, so the power of the word is that I hide it in my heart, I don't just read it surface level. I take it and I bury it in the inner part of my being. And this will shield me from sinning. But that the power of the word goes beyond that. That it not only keeps me from sinning and brings me back if I've wandered off into sin. This is a wonderful truth of the scriptures. That in me, listen, if I put it in me, it will keep me from sinning. But if I deposit it in somebody else, it will become a source. It will become a voice for their return down the road. Does that make sense? For example, you know that wonderful proverb, one of the famous proverbs where it says, train up a child in the way he should go and what? When he is old, he will not depart from it. It's a wonderful principle, right? Train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. But how many have testified, and some of you have this testimony, that even when you grew up with the word and you grew up in Sunday school and you grew up with the church, that you veered off at one point in your life. But here you are again. Why? I'm sure that one reason is because in your heart was deposited the word of God. In your heart there was an investment made by someone. And though you may not have remembered exactly what it was, there was a flicker of light when you found yourself in a foreign land. Now we know that that is not true for all faithful homes. Some people veer off and they die that way. That's true. This isn't a black and white kind of promise necessarily. But it is a principle that amplifies the possibility. I can tell you this. When I, when I got saved at 20, and when I was in despair and in depression because of my lifestyle of sin, what was the flicker of hope in my heart? It was what I heard my whole life, even though I was dozing off in the pews, even though I was flipping around and, and, and left early almost every week to do my own thing. 
the word was showered over me. And so when I found myself in Babylon, something was in me to remind me, it's Jesus. Just run to him. That's where I could run to, and that's where I ran to because of the investment that was made into my life, even if I was not the direct source of the investment. The parents that you have that made the investment, the, the Sunday school teacher, there is so much power in this word that it can light the path for somebody to run back into the promised land. It's a wonderful truth. So remember, remember the word, remember the promises, remember the blessings, remember the gospel if you're away from God, remember where you came from. Remember who called you and saved you in the first place. Not just remember. Here's step number two. Verse two. So you remember and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today. The second thing is repentance. So once you remember, that's not just one, oh yeah, I remember that. I was supposed to live for God and hear all his promises. That's a wonderful thing. No, you remember so that you can return to the Lord your God. We have to read our Bibles very slow and carefully. Did he say return to your theology? Did he say return to acts of penance? Did he say return to your church? What did he say? Return to the Lord your God. So we learned that the call to remembrance is because oftentimes when a person backslides, he forgets the word. He doesn't, he doesn't daily rehearse the, the truth. But here's the second reason why somebody would backslide, and this is another reason that people miss. Ready for this one? This is for the person that might be confused because they read their Bibles and they're still backsliding. Think, how can you read your Bibles and still backslide? When you forget this, return to the Lord your God. Meaning, they had lost their perception and the practice of an intimate relationship with the Lord. See, God was calling them to come back to him. Not to the temple. Not to a system of beliefs, but to him as a person. Do you know where people lose motivation for obedience? Is when they fail to realize that I have a relationship with the living God. And you make it about anything other than that, you better believe that you will lose fuel to remain faithful to God. What keeps me from not doing things that would hurt a person I love when I realize that this person is a person and that I have a relationship with them? But the moment that blurs, even especially concerning God, when I, when I fail to realize that he's a person with emotions and he longs for fellowship, that gets blurred. You have no idea the, the boundless limits of where you will find yourself. So I have to understand that this whole thing why we're here even tonight is because of a thing called a personal relationship with the Lord your God. You lose that, you lose obedience. You lose the motivation for holiness. You lose the motivation for living for God rightly. What keeps a man from not cheating on his wife? Is it her love for him? She loves me, so I'm not going to do anything to hurt her. Or is it the man's love for her? It's the man's love for her that keeps him faithful. This might help, but this will keep you guarded. And, and many people, they understand God loves them, but because they don't love God, they can't remain faithful to him. Return to the Lord your God. 
come back to the reality of this personal relationship with the living God first, and then what? Look what he says in the second part. And then obey all of his commands. He could have said, obey, return and obey his commands. And that would have been right. But that's not what God is after. Not robotic obedience. It's to come back to the realization that he's a person and he wants my heart and he wants me to know him and then from that place I can walk in faithfulness. Here's proof of that. John 14, 15, we know this verse. If you love me, what did Jesus say? Obey my commandments. And now we've interpreted this way and it's right that the measure of my love for Christ is only determined by obedience. It's not sentiment, it's not emotionalism. Oh, I love Jesus but you live in the world. That doesn't make sense. Jesus is like, mm, no, you love me only when you obey me. But I want us to look at it a different way. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So yes, it's measured by my obedience to Jesus. That's how my love is measured by Christ. But also, it tells me this. I can't obey him unless I love him. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you don't love him, you're not going to obey his commandments. So again, it comes back to the, the principle of personal relationship. If I can't love the person of Jesus Christ, there's no way that you can get me to obey him. And obedience surely is measured by, rather love is measured by obedience. Return to the Lord your God, and then from there you'll be able to obey him. Lastly, look at verse 2. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. With all your heart and with all your soul. So the first one was, what was the first thing to do? Remember. What was the second thing? Return or repent. And here's the third thing. If, if, we wanna, if somebody wants to know how to, to be restored in a marvelous way by God, even if they have shattered their convictions and their commitment to God. Ready? The last one is remain. Remain. With all your heart, with all your soul. And this is where a lot of people get it wrong. It's a clarification that God's restoration in people's lives is only possible when, when their return is with a sincere heart to say, I've realized what I've done was wrong. I want to return to God, but restoration can't be possible even after step two unless that person's heart is fully convinced that when I return, I have no intentions of going back. See, this is why people can't pervert this doctrine of grace because there's a condition upon this restoration and it's this. I must be fully convinced that I'm never intending to go back the way I was. When I'm going to be restored by him, it's with a mindset of staying faithful to him with no desires or premeditations for sin. So this repentance is a wholehearted repentance. This desire to come back, God sees the heart. You can't fool him and that's why he's saying that. So a person can't say, you know, this is, I don't really like this. I'm really uncomfortable where I am right now. It's really not going well for me, so I'm just going to come back to God because, but it, yeah, I don't know how long that's going to last, but God, take me back. It's just not going to work. It's a person who has been dealt with by sin enough and seeing what their life is like apart from God enough. They've learned enough to say, with my whole heart and with my whole soul, I'm coming back to you. When God sees that, then verse 3 is a possibility, which is what? 
Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. Then, when I remember, when I return, and when I plan to remain, God says, hear my arms wide open and watch what you will experience as I give you a love and you experience a mercy that you never thought was imaginable. Now, this is Bible study, so we take our time with the text. How, how did God refer himself to the people up to this point? Look at how God referred himself to the people. How is God giving, giving his identity to his people? How is he relating to them in these texts? In the first three, four verses. Do you see it? If you see it, just point it out and, and say it. This would probably be better if you have the ESV. Sarah said it. What does he say? The Lord what? Your God. So we see in the first three verses, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God. Four times in the first three verses, he refers to himself as the Lord your God. Now count it from chapter 30, from verse 1 down to verse 10, 12 times. 12 times, I believe, unless it's the whole chapter, I might have miscounted, but Around a dozen times does the Lord say, I'm the Lord, your God. I'm the Lord, your God. Now, whenever there's repetition, there's revelation. Why would God refer, out of all the ways God could have identified himself to his people, he wants to bury this truth in their minds, the Lord, your God, the Lord, your God, the Lord, your God. Can anybody figure out why he would say that in the context that we're presented here? Sure. So he is saying something about him being the true God and them understanding him being the true God in light of all the other idols that they might be surrounded by. So he's reminding you of the personal aspect of them being in relationship and the covenant that they had. He wants an intimate relationship with his people. These are all right. He's making it unique to them. He's saying, your God, not the world's God, but Israel's God. Sure, so again, reminding them of the covenant and the true and living God, who he is, yes. Yes, again, personal relationship, these are all right. Sure, you want to expand on that? Well, he's shown all three persons, so he's being intimate with his people. This is all me talking to you. Sure. So again, the element, I think we all get it. It's the element of personal relationship. But there's even a deeper understanding here. What's the context here? When they would be what? Displaced from their land and when they would be experiencing judgment and discipline and chastisement. That is the context. And yet still in that state, in that place of pain, God still wants to remind that I'm still your God. In that place of exile, in that place of being in bondage, in that place of experiencing the bitterness of their own choices, God still wants to remind the Israelites, hey, I want you to remember this. I'm still your God. I still identify myself to you as your God. No matter how far your sin has taken you, you will not be able to separate the reality of me still identifying myself to you. I'm still yours and you're still mine. We still are in relationship, even though you have severed it over and over again. I'm not ashamed to identify myself to you as your God. That's the context. He's not saying, 
the Lord your God in a context of them living obediently to him. Oh, when you walk in perfect obedience and you faithfully observe all the feasts and you give your tithes, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God. I am proud to call you my people and you should realize that I am proud to say that I'm your God. No. The Lord your God, when you are experiencing every curse written in this book, I'm still your God. This is what we understand about the father love of God. That even when he disciplines us, it's always in love. And this is the point of this first half of the Bible study, understanding God is the God of restoration. What this means is that God would not reject them if they would truly repent and turn to him. It's not like they have so blown it that they're in Babylon and God's arms are crossed and he's saying, tough luck. Look at where your sin brought you. Enjoy it. I've warned you for 400 years, prophet after prophet. How many signs and wonders do I need to show you for you to be faithful? Eat the dust of Babylon. Call upon me all you want. You blew it. Hey, to the human mind, that would make sense, right? You break a relationship over and over again, stop calling my phone. Stop trying to get together with me. Stop trying to re reconcile. It's done. We, we understand that. But here's God saying, the Lord your God. And he wants them to know that reconciliation is still possible. Relationship is still a possibility if you want it. And he's reminding them of that. You're saying, why is Moses doing this? Because of the depth of the compassion of God. That even when in his omniscience, knowing that hundreds of years from now, they will blow it. He wants to remind them hundreds of years before, I'm waiting for you to come back. Show me another God like that. Is this, is this helping us understand that the Old Testament God is not a different God than the New Testament? Is this helping us understand that the Old Testament version of God is not God in a bad mood for a very long time, and then he's in a good mood when Jesus comes? In fact, it's only amplified more when Jesus steps on the scene and God takes on flesh. I hope we are familiar enough with God to see him from cover to cover that he is the God of restoration. You know what I mean by restoration? I'm not saying you being a sinner and then being saved. I'm talking about you being in a relationship with God and you blowing it. And God's still willing to take you back and to restore you into fellowship and even to use you on top of that. So, I, I would like to know, in your minds tonight, is there any other stories or persons in the Bible where we see God executing his restoration on somebody's life? Gomer. Gomer? David. It was David, wasn't it? Okay. God of restoration. We Christians need to be familiar with this idea of God. Peter. Peter. Oh, man, if there's a story about restoration, Peter is one of them. Paul? I was going to say Paul. Okay, in what way? How is Paul? Yeah, absolutely. So Paul, I would say Paul is an example of somebody more specifically that is forgiven by God and brought in by God, but we want to stay in the lane of somebody that was with God and blew it and then God brought him back. Jacob? Yes, absolutely. 
Jonah. Jonah is one of them as well, yes. Samson. Samson. Now, I'm not here to start a debate, but if there's one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, the New Testament, Peter. Old Testament, amongst all the lists there, Samson. There's something about Samson. But remember Peter, right? We're so familiar with the story. Peter with all his boys and Jesus talking about how he's going to die and how he's going to be arrested and all these things. And Peter, right? Peter's like, oh, here's my chance. And he goes, I'll die with you. He goes, they might, they might. No, but I, I will be faithful with you and I will run with you to the end. And Jesus is like, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And sure enough, Peter, with as much as he wants to be faithful, he cannot, and he denies Jesus. And when he denies Jesus, the Gospels tell us that he wept bitterly. I mean, there's one account that tells us that even in the moment of his denial, I can't picture it. I try to every time I read it, where Jesus turns to him and looks at him. And when Jesus turns to him and looks at him, it says that Peter wept bitterly. And he couldn't even stand the sight. And I don't believe Peter saw eyes of condemnation. I don't believe when Peter denied Christ and saw Jesus turn his eyes and with those fiery pupils of love. I don't think he saw you blew it, Peter. I think he saw something of compassion and love and tenderness that he could not even, in his manliness, or supposed manliness, couldn't even take it. He melted like a marshmallow. And what happens? In Mark's account, when Jesus raises from the grave and the woman come to the tomb, they find an angel. And the angel, who is giving a message to the woman, wants them to go back to the disciples so that Jesus can meet with them again. And this is what he says. Look at this. Again, this is calling us to read our Bible slowly and carefully. Mark 16, verse 7. Look what it said here. This is what the angel tells the woman. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Do you see it? What do we see there? But go, tell his disciples. And he could have just said, tell his disciples. The angel says, go tell Jesus' disciples to meet him in Galilee. He doesn't do that. He says, but go, tell his disciples and who? And Peter. And the angel was very specific because God was very specific. Why do you think he did that? What do you think it would have felt like for Peter to be in that room locked up with all those disciples? And the woman come back rushing and they knock on the door and they're thinking, is it, is it the Pharisees? And they're like, Andrew, go check out. Go, go check out. And he goes up to the door and he looks and he says, no, it's, 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 the, it's our sisters. And they open the door and they come in and they're saying, he's alive, all these things. And we've been told Jesus says, go tell my disciples and Peter. What do you think would have happened to Peter's heart in that moment? He said my name. He singled me out. He didn't put me in the batch with the disciples and he could have done that. He called for me specifically. By name. You realize he had denied him before this, right? This is Mark 16, Mark 14, just two chapters, barely. Peter denies him. 
And yet Jesus in his resurrected state, you know who he had in mind when he told the messenger, the angel to go to the disciples through the woman? He goes, make sure that you single out Peter when you go back and tell them to meet me in Galilee. Let's look at it in this context here. Let's say you personally have blown it. You've denied Christ. You've denied your relationship with the Lord at work, at school, and from your family. Who knows? And then somebody comes up here to say, the Lord wants to meet us all in Galilee. He said, tell his disciples and Daniel. I want Daniel to be there. I want to make sure that he is there because I want to see him. And we see what Jesus does when he sees Peter. He has a barbecue ready and he restores him. That's the heart of God. That even when you deny him, he's calling you by name. It would have been a whole different thing if he called all of them by name. All the disciples, tell, boom, 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 boom. No, I need Peter to be there. Surely this did something to the man's heart. Surely this did not make him afraid to meet Jesus when he was called out by his name. And guess what? If he really wanted to give it to him, he would have called him by his old name. Tell the disciples and Simon. Simon, you know the, the man who was Simon before he became Peter, when I gave him that new identity? No, he calls him by his new identity. Give me Peter. And as I said, and many of you said, if there is anybody in the Old Testament that exemplifies God's restoration, surely it's Samson. But before we go there, look at verse 4 of Deuteronomy 30. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. You know what he's saying there? He goes, even if you are, so, you, listen, even if you get in a spaceship and you shoot yourself into space, and you travel galaxies and galaxies and galaxies away from the will of God, even if you find yourself in a place where you cannot even sense me or realize in the last time you've heard from no matter where, if you want to return, I will find a way to bring you back. That's what he's trying to say. Even if you're an outcast of heaven, never mind Babylon, I'm willing to take you in. Talk about a picture of walking away from the will of God. I mean, some might skip church on a Sunday, which we shouldn't do, and we already feel like we're severed from him. Leave him in such a state as this and realize that he's still calling you home. Moses wanted his people to know something about God in a way that it would, it would call them to just fall on their face and say, I want this God to be my God. Samson. Think about Samson's life for a second. Called out by God to be a judge and a deliverer for the nation of Israel. Okay? And he symbolized his consecration by having long hair. That was the command. He had long hair to symbolize that he was consecrated unto God as a holy man for one task that he lived for, and that was to be a deliverer from the Philistines that oppressed him over and over. Samson is one of the most tragic figures in the Bible, and I would say one of the most mysterious in the sense that you go to the New Testament and you see the hall of faith, and who's mentioned there? Samson. That always 
baffles me. I read Hebrews 11, I'm like, Abraham makes sense. Yes, makes sense. Isaac makes sense. Makes sense, makes sense, makes sense. Then you come to Samson, you're like, this is tough for me to reconcile with how I read Samson's life. And listen, Samson, though he was an individual, this is so important to understand, do you realize that Samson as a person reflected the nation of Israel? You realize that the story of Samson reflected the people of Israel, right? So here's an example. Samson was called to be holy and set apart. Israel was called to be holy and set apart. Samson, what was, what was the thing that led to his demise? What was he doing? Promiscuity. Samson was chasing after women. Israel was chasing after false gods. Samson, eventually, because of his chasing after women, as a reflection of Israel chasing after false gods, Samson was handed over to who? Who was he handed over to? The enemy. Israel, as a result of their chasing after false gods, what was the result of their sin? Handed over to the enemy. And yet still, Samson, in that state of depravity and darkness, as he was a clown for the Philistines, an entertainer, with his eyes plucked out and scars over them, beaten and battered, grinding a mill, would know something of restoration, so would the nation of Israel. So even the story of Samson reflects the state of Israel. And I want us to turn to two verses in that story, and, and hear me out on this, that I believe present probably one of the most heart-wrenching, that's not a good feeling, heart-wrenching, and also one of the most heartwarming experiences that somebody can have in their relationship with the Lord. In two verses, I believe, we will read of one of the most heart-wrenching, like you read it and you go, God, I never would want to see the day. And also at the same time, one of the most heartwarming realities of God relating to somebody that will surely warn us and bless us. So here's the verse. Turn your Bibles to Judges 16, verse 20. This is where the story of Samson is found. So remember Samson's problem, right? Who was the woman that he was involved with? Delilah. And Samson was sporting with his sin where he was thinking, how close can I come to the line before I, I don't get enough of sin where I, 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 you know, he's trying to do this flip-flop thing and it's just not working. And, and finally he entertains it to the point where this happens. Look at verse 20. Then she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. You know why she was doing this? Because Delilah, this woman that he fell in love with, was hired to pretty much get Samson to confess the source of his power. And he would do it, but he would lie. He would do it, but he would lie. And she was getting annoyed because there was big money involved. And every time he would confess it, she would do what she needed to do to make sure he had no power. And the Philistines would come and try to get him. And he would break free and, and just throw them around like nothing. But this time, he does it. He coughs it up. She says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And what happens? And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. Here's the most heart-wrenching, one of the most heart-wrenching verses in the Old Testament relating to a person. Ready? 
and he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Now, what does that mean? It means in the immediate, this is what it means. That Samson had so lived in disobedience that the Spirit of God could no longer supply supernatural strength to him in his ministry. That Samson had reached the point where the Spirit of the Lord says, he's, he's gone too far. And so when Samson wanted to operate in his ability, it was not available to him. If you're in ministry at any capacity, you never want that in your life, okay? You never want to do things apart from the Spirit of God. It's our prayer in this church all the time, before Bible study, before Sunday morning, before we do anything. God, if your spirit is not in this place on Friday night, let's close shop and go home. What's the point? Samson had reached the point where he had so grieved God where God said, it's enough. And he did not even realize it, so he found himself in deep trouble. But I, I read this for the first time in a new way that it shook me to the core. How do you not know that the Spirit of God had lifted off of you? Think about that. I mean, you were one of the most anointed men in your day. You were, you were, you were in your own category. You were a superhero. And Samson had come to the place in his life where he could not even recognize that the Lord had lifted off from him. Do you know why? This is what I believe. I believe that Samson had lived so independently and so self-sufficiently and so separated from fellowship from God that when the Lord left him, he didn't even realize it. You've probably experienced that where you're in, you're in your house and you're probably doing things in your room and you thought you were home alone and then you later on that night your mom was like, you know, sorry, I left home early, I had to do this. And you're like, you were home the whole time? I didn't know you were even home. I thought I was home all alone. And I believe Samson was living in such a way where he was so separated in that place of relationship with him that when the Lord had left, it was like he didn't even know it. That's terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying. I want to know if the Lord lifts his hand off me. I want to know what it's like to have him near me and what it's like for him not to be near me. I want to know so that if there is anything in my life that would cause him to not bless me as he would bless me, I would run back to him. Samson did not know. That's the most heart-wrenching, one of the most, arguably. And then what happens? Let's look at verse 21. Here's the result. He's captured because of his own sin, and the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. We, we just learned that Samson's problem was what? What was Samson's problem throughout his life? His eyes. Samson's whole issue was promiscuity. He, he could not control himself in the place of consecration in terms of sexual relations. The problem with Samson with his, was with his eyes. And it's, it's, it's funny how the Bible's highlighting that his eyes were gouged out. You know why? Because Samson needed to do that spiritually before he got to this point. Samson needed to do this for himself before this physical infliction came upon him. He needed to, in his soul, remove those eyes from praying and from looking at places that he shouldn't have looked. But instead, his eyes were removed physically as a punishment. 
and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in prison. So here's this guy who had his eyes removed, his head shaved, and he is grinding at the mill and at the demand of the Philistines would be some kind of entertainer whenever they wanted to boast in their victory. Terrible thing. But what I love about this is verse 22. Ready? But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. I love that verse. That word but is a huge word there. The hair of his head began to grow. And I try to visualize this verse. That here's Samson grinding at the mill. And as he's grinding, and who knows what he was doing hours a day, stubble began to come back. And though he couldn't see his hair, though there was no mirror, even if he had eyes to be able to behold it, I'm sure at one point he put his head, his hand against his head, and he began to feel hair. Why would the Bible tell us that? Because it wants us to know that though he was in this state, restoration was coming to a man like Samson. The hair, the length of his hair was the physical symbol of his ministry and of his special relationship with the Lord. When Delilah called him to ask for the source of his power, it was in his hair. He cut it off. For what? An inappropriate relationship. He goes, bye-bye ministry and bye-bye consecration to the Lord. That's what he did to God. No wonder the Spirit of the Lord lifted off of him. He goes, I want Delilah more than you, God. I want I want a one-night stand more than being the nation's deliverer. So here's my hair. Like what a spit in the face to God. What an insult to be a man that could make history for God and to bring relief. You want to talk about selfishness? Do you think God anoints a man so that the man can be a superstar and everybody can talk about him? He anointed the man for the Israelites. I called you so that you can serve the people, my people, and you threw it all away. Because I want my flesh to be satisfied. And after all of that, his hair begins to grow. And he calls out to God for one more chance to vindicate his name and one more chance to fulfill his ministry, and he kills all these Israelites by that famous scene of him pushing those pillars And thousands died as an answer to prayer and as an act of God's mercy. But it cost them a lot. See, the concept of restoration, brothers and sisters, is not that the consequences of our sin are erased. Wouldn't that be nice? It's not true, though. Restoration is when God, despite our sin, brings us back to fellowship with him and is willing to even use us, yes. But I I got to tell you honestly, there are scars involved. And for Samson, it was on his eyelids. And for you, it could be something else. Samson is an amazing story of God being restored. Let's go back to Deuteronomy as we close in a few moments. Verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You know, we're talking about devotion, right? We're talking about when we walk away and we come back. But for many people, the cycle, the cycle of devotion and defilement is a, is a reoccurring thing. 
that if they were to just really record their life, they would see that though there is some kind of a desire to live for God, what outweighs that desire being lived out even for more than a week is total disobedience and outright sin in their lives. And here's one reason for that. Here's one explanation amongst many, but here's a core reason. Why is it that a person might have a desire to serve God, but that desire is easily swallowed up by the desires of the flesh? Well, it's found right here. Because it's a heart issue. It's not a behavioral issue. It's not merely an intellectual assent issue. It's a heart issue. And the heart issue is this, is that there needs to be a work done in the center of who you are before you can even begin to live for God right. So in this verse, verse 6, is gospel truth. That this is a prophetic statement of what the ministry of Jesus Christ would be able to give to the world. And that is a heart surgery. See, this would have been an interesting thing for the Israelites because they've heard their whole lives of something called circumcision in the physical. That their devotion to God was displayed through an act of cutting of the flesh in the physical. But what God is after is something internal. And here's an important distinction. The physical circumcision could be performed by any person, but the inward circumcision can only be performed by God. And so this is gospel proclamation in Deuteronomy 30, and it's also a prophetic statement of what would happen to ethnic Israel. Now, three, two, three weeks ago, I believe, we talked about this in a whole Bible study, God's relationship to the nation Israel. And so this would be another foretelling of what would happen to the nation Israel, that salvation will come to the nation, and then the nation will declare Jesus to be the Messiah. But this is still gospel truth. You know where the last time circumcision of the heart is mentioned? Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is important. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Because we just learned that it's God's work, right, in the heart. For my heart to be changed, for the things that need to be cut out to be cut out, only God can do it. So what's man's responsibility in it? Some would say none. I would say I disagree. Look at Deuteronomy 10 verse 16. Look what God says to the same audience. He says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So which one is it? Is God going to circumcise the heart or does man circumcise the heart? In chapter 10 he says, you do it. You need to circumcise your own heart so that you no longer live in stubbornness. And the Israelites are like, oh, okay. Then you come to chapter 30 and he goes, and the Lord will circumcise your heart. Well, who's going to do the work? Is man going to do the work or is God going to do the work? I would like to present that as a discussion. How do we reconcile these two truths? Lest we fall into the category of contradiction. Ah, so Naren says you have to yield to God for him to work in your heart. Would anybody agree or disagree with that? He says, circumcise therefore your heart, and then he says, I'll do it. So Lord, am I going to do it or you're going to do it? Do I change my own heart or are you going to change my own heart? The Lord changes your heart. You yeah. can. So we can't. The Lord does, yes. I think you have to make that decision to want to, and then he helps you do it. It is so encouraging to be amongst gospel-saturated people because you guys are right. Is, is you going to amplify on that? 
Yeah, I just agree to bring up Philippians 2, where we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good. I believe.